Well, there is a, a pandemic of sorts that has been raging across our country for the past year, but not just for the past year, for the past several decades, and it is the pandemic of abortion. Did you know that in Canada, on average, so we could use 2019 statistics because we don't have the 2020 statistics available yet, but in 2019, check this out, 83,000 unborn babies were aborted just in Canada. 83,000. That's the size of a small to medium-sized city. And then if you looked at our, our province, just our province, the province of Ontario, almost 250 people were murdered by a stranger or someone they knew. So we do live in a culture where murder is taking place, especially when it comes to infants, but also when it comes to adults and teenagers, etc. If you look at some of the most popular television shows or popular movies, series, for example, the vast majority of them have murder in them. You know, cop shooting someone maybe unjustly or a couple bad guys duking it out. It's not uncommon for us to just turn on the television set and witness a murder. And we're so used to it, we probably don't even think about it as a murder. It's just, oh, it's just entertainment. So we're constantly being exposed to it. And then perhaps, on a few occasions at least, you've had some murderous thoughts cross your mind. You've become enraged or embittered by someone, and we don't know what the stats are on those. It's hard to keep track of people's thoughts. But most of us have probably had a time or two in our lives, maybe a time or two in the past week, where we're like, yeah, I kind of wish that person didn't exist. So it is, it is a relevant theme for us to discuss, and into our murderous society, we have this statement given to us by God in the Ten Commandments. This is the Sixth Commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, where God says, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. This is the Sixth Commandment of the famous Ten Commandments. We also call them at times the Decalogue that Yahweh God delivered to the people of God centuries ago. Now keep in mind that this has always been a problem since the beginning of time. Cain, the first baby ever to be born on earth, murdered his own brother. Think about that. So this isn't a new problem. And God on the other hand, has never murdered anyone. So God is the ultimate pro-lifer, and God has a pro-life message for us to consider today that may or may not relate directly to your temptations, but certainly relates to society as a whole. Now, when we are exposed to this commandment, you shall not murder, if you're like me, you're, you know, you're, the wheels of your mind begin to turn and you start to ask various questions, ethical questions, about how this truth transcends into the issues that we sometimes are exposed to in society. So what I would like to do with you today is to sort of do like a, a Q&A, but I'm going to be doing the Q-ing and the a -ing, okay? And... 
I want to address ethical questions about taking human life. But as I ask these questions, I suspect that many of you have asked them as well. So I'm sort of going to ask them on your behalf. So here's some ethical questions that, that come to the surface when we start to consider this teaching that God has given to us, this commandment, you shall not murder. So the first one is, what qualifies as murder? What, what is murder and what isn't murder? And the definition I would offer you is this. Murder is the taking of human life in a morally illegal way. Not in an illegal way because some cultures permit it by law. Not in a way that is moral, but in a morally illegal way. So it's the taking of human life in a morally illegal way. So we're not talking today about the various ways that human life can justly or rightly be taken. I'm going to give you several scriptures to that effect momentarily. And nor am I talking about the taking of human life in governmentally illegal ways or in governmentally legal ways, nor am I talking about the taking of an animal's life. Sometimes you see ill-informed people say, oh, you know, killing a cow is murder or killing a dog is murder. It's not murder. The definition is very limited. Murder pertains exclusively to the taking of human life. One can morally or immorally take the life of an animal, but one cannot murder an animal under any circumstances. So contrary to the way that people often use the word murder, one cannot murder an animal and it's not always murder to take another human being's life. So we, when it comes to animals, by the way, for those of you that are animal lovers, and, and I care for animals, I, we, have, we have lots of animals ourselves. I'm not, like a, I'm not an extremist in this regard, but I do believe it's a stewardship issue to take proper care of the animals. I don't love my animals in the same way that I love human beings. Animals come, animals go, they die. I don't shed tears over that. But when I have animals in my care, I take very good care of them. And I'm always disgusted and repulsed by people that abuse animals. I think it's, it's kind of sick and, and a bit uh, sadistic to do that. But it's not murder to take the life of an animal. Nor does murder cease to be murder just because a government sanctions it, as in the case of abortion. Now, I, I hope you're aware that the biggest problem in Canada is not that we have laws that permit abortion, but we just don't have any laws at all. So it's kind of a free-for-all. You can just kind of do whatever you want. So theoretically in Canada, you can take the life of a child right up till the time it's in the birth canal. There's just no laws to that effect. This is obviously a problem. The Bible does not teach that humans can never, ever, under any circumstances, kill other humans. God himself has killed people, and God is never immoral. For example, after killing not murdering, but after killing the Egyptian army who were pursuing the Israelites who had just escaped from captivity. Exodus 15, three states, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Well, if God's a God of war, then we can't just say all wars is evil. The taking of human life is always under every circumstances wrong. We can't say that because that would make God immoral. So we could say God kills, 
God takes human life, but God does not murder. For example, in theory, if you were an absolutely perfect person, as Adam and Eve were before the fall of mankind into sin, you'd never have to worry about having your life taken by God. Now, that's a theoretical construct because we've all sinned and we're all therefore worthy of death. But God does not commit a moral act. So this is an interesting thing that I don't, I don't normally like to clutter up my sermons with a lot of detailed sort of technical exegesis and discussions about Hebrew words and Greek words and the like. I know some preachers seem to like to impress their congregations with that kind of discussion. I, I have no interest in that. But we do need to do a little bit of that today in order to understand this commandment. <clears throat> and in the Hebrew Bible, which is composed of Genesis through Malachi, the first 39 books of the Bible were written in Hebrew. And the New Testament was written in common Greek. So in the Hebrew Bible, which has been translated into English, we generally call it the Old or Older Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, there are actually seven different words that differentiate between murdering and various kinds of killing. So these words are, have different shades of meaning. And the particular word that's used in the sixth commandment is the word rotsock. Thou shalt not rotsock another person. That's the idea here. And this particular word occurs 47 times in the Old Testament. So we have lots of context. We can look at all the different usages of this word and see how it's being used in various situations and contexts. And what we discover when we study out the usage of this word is that Ratzak is used in situations for premeditated, intentional murder of another human being. Premeditated, intentional murder of another human being. So you might ask, well, what are some of the other ways that similar kinds of words are being used in the scriptures? Well, there, there's other words, there's six other words, and they can refer to, for example, unintentional taking of another human being's life. So you, you, you kill someone by accident. That's a different word. Killing in war, that's a different word. That's not rotsock, that's a different word. Capital punishment, that's a different word that's being used in the scriptures. Or if you, by way of negligence, participate in some way in the death of another person. So the classic historical example is you have a big old mean bull on your property that's been known to stomp people and you leave the gate open all the time and it goes out and stomps your neighbor and kills your neighbor. Well, you didn't do the killing and you didn't send the bull to kill your neighbor, but you, you're complicit in some way in that person's death. So that's a different Hebrew word. So there's, there's various kinds of killing or murder that a person can engage in. And this word refers to premeditated, intentional death of another human being. So we, we cannot then say that, well, the, 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 the sixth commandment forbids going to war. We can never go to war because the Bible says, you, you, you know, thou, thou shalt not murder. Uh, we, we have to stand against capital punishment because the Bible says, you know, we can't murder. 
or you know, the penalty for intentional murder is the same as letting your bull out. No, the Bible has a different theology, a different set of structures or standards, consequences, principles that apply to these different kinds of taking of a, a human life. So the second question then is, well, when is taking life morally unlawful and what are the consequences of it? So when is it that I have actually committed a sin in taking another person's life? So said another way, what does a violation of the sixth commandment actually entail? What does that look like for me? And what happens if I break the sixth commandment? What are the consequences? What are the implications for my life? So let me look with you at a few different passages of the Bible because there's multiple answers to this. And the first place we'll go is to Exodus 21, 12. And there it says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Whoever strikes a man, so you got a, you got a bat, a sword, a stone, and you go up and you whack someone with it, and they die, the Bible says the offender shall be put to death. So what we discover here is that a direct physical assault on another person that causes death qualifies as murder. And the consequence to the person who's committed that act is death. So if you attack someone else, and you take their life, you're a murderer, and you've therefore broken the sixth commandment. There's a little funny little story of a Sunday school teacher that was interacting with his class, and he asked one of the little girls in the class if there are any commandments in the Bible that she could think of that relate to her the way she's supposed to treat her brother. And you can imagine what she pointed to. She said, I can think of one, thou shalt not murder. So there may be times in life where, you know, we, we, we think about murdering someone. We maybe have a, a temptation to, to do so. Hopefully very few of you have ever acted on that. There, there may be a propensity in, in everyone's heart at times to wish that someone were dead and maybe even to participate in that process. But what we need to understand is that is contrary to God's law. So we, we, we never just go and, there's no, there's no circumstance in which we're permitted to just go and snuff someone's life out because we hate them. There's a second application of this though in scripture, and it's found in Exodus chapter 21, verses 22, 23, right through to 25. And this is especially appropriate and applicable given our circumstances, and that is, carelessly, just carelessly, not even in a premeditated way, but carelessly causing the premature death of an unborn child is punishable by death. Think about that. So in Exodus 21, I'll just read 22 and then skip to 23, 24, and 25. It says, when men strive together, so let's say two guys are in a fight. They're duking it out. You know, there's a lot of testosterone going on. They're fighting over some issue. When two men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, you know, a premature delivery, if there is no harm, 
then you pay, or if there is harm rather, then you pay life for life. Notice God is acknowledging that an unborn child is a, a human life equal to a born child. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. It's very clear. It's amazing how society casts this aside and we have Christians running around opposed to capital punishment. They got all kinds of reasons for it. Well, it doesn't rehabilitate. It doesn't help. What if the person hasn't heard the gospel yet? Look, God makes up the rules. And God says that if you strike a woman and the child comes out and as a result, there is some injury, that injury is due to you as well. If you cause the death of that child, then your life is to be taken as well. Now, if that's true, two guys are fighting and they, they hit a woman and she miscarries and her child dies, how much angrier do you think God is when people deliberately make an appointment to go to a hospital or abortion clinic and have a child sliced and diced in the womb and vacuumed out? This would have been unheard of in ancient Israelite civilization. But it's taking place all the time. And you know what? There's more people in our society today that are appalled at the idea of a puppy mill than they are at an abortion mill. And doesn't that say a lot about the heart and soul of our nation? So God has some truth for us to consider in this regard. There's a third application of Rotsock, being an accessory to murder. So when King David, you remember the story of King David, he was more or less a great leader, but every once in a while he did something incredibly, incredibly wicked. And at one point he got lazy and he stopped working and he was lounging around his palace getting fat. And he's out on the roof one day and he looks out and he sees this beautiful woman and the story goes he desired her, desired her and so he calls her into the house and he gets her pregnant and lo and behold, her husband is one of his choice warriors. Now, interestingly, her husband, his name is Uriah the Hittite, which is pretty important. It's not just Uriah, it's Uriah the Hittite, meaning he's a non-Jew. He's a righteous Gentile that had come into the nation of Israel and was serving the purposes of God, which is a fascinating thing. The kind of a last guy you would expect, but he's serving the purposes of God. So the contrast is here between a righteous, supposedly righteous Israelite that's acting unrighteously and an unrighteous Gentile that's acting righteously. So the story goes that David has him set up so that his life is taken at the hand of the Ammonites in battle. So David wasn't there. But when God confronts David in 2 Samuel 12, 9, he says to his prophet, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And then it says, you have struck down. David could have said, oh, oh, no, 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 it was the Ammonites. No, you, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, David, David wasn't put to death because he was the king, but he deserved it. He was culpable in the death of Uriah. And so a person can also be guilty of murder when they stand at the sidelines. You know, the, the, the sort of the the idea of the Godfather who sanctions the, the murders of others. He's just as responsible as the trigger man. 
So when we sanction or knowingly permit murder, that is also disgusting and sinful in the eyes of God. Here's another one. Authorities who fail to punish murderers. So there's another king in the Old Testament. His name is King Ahab, and he's kind of a sucky baby. And he, he looks out at the, the vineyard of a guy by the name of Naboth, and he's like, well, oh, this is a great vineyard. The guy's done a great job. Look at all the grapes. Think of all the wine I could make. And he goes and makes them an offer of purchase and sale. And Naboth's like, yeah, no thanks. Now, by the way, there's some law to this because the various tribes are supposed to keep their land unto themselves. So Ahab is sort of stretching the boundaries of God's civil laws, but that's not really the point I want to make. He starts to pout. And so him and his wife cook up a scheme whereby two liars go and tell everyone that Naboth had cursed God and broken the third commandment. Naboth is put to death unjustly because of a lie. And Ahab goes and buys the property. Now, while he was not the instrument of murder, he was a catalyst for it. So what does God say? First Kings 21, 17 to 19, read, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, go arise, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, you have killed and also taken possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. So God basically says, you've taken this man's life give it a little bit of time and I'm going to take yours. So you see this idea here. This is like, these are premeditated acts. People are complicit in the death because of their foolish actions and in, in, the, in, the, in the death of other people. So all, all of these situations are, have something in common. A person intentionally or as a result of their absolute foolishness causes the death of another person. And therefore, this is a clear violation of this commandment. So, a little application. We need to ask ourselves some questions. When was the last time we spoke out against these forms of murder and spoke for biblical forms of punishment? Spoke out against these forms of murder and spoke for biblical forms of punishment. If you look at our culture as a whole, and we could tell story after story of this, where someone commits a heinous act and the punishment is not commensurate. Not commensurate. You hear of people that have raped and murdered and killed and committed pedophilia and, and, and they get five years, 10 years, 20 years, 25 years in jail. And then they're out living the rest of their lives. Why? Because we don't have a penal system. We have a correctional system. Notice the words there. Canada corrections. We're about correcting. We're about rehabilitating. We don't want to talk about punishment. But God talks about punishment. We know that the wages of sin is what? Death. God talks about punishment. It's the basis of the gospel. But again, we, we see, we, we live in a culture where people are more likely to gasp when they see a cat run over on the road than babies being killed at the Windsor Hospital. And it's a travesty. 
By the way, we're planning on doing a, a conference, Lord willing, on September the 25th of this year, on and revolving around the subject of abortion and how we can respond to it. So I hope you can join us for that. But as we survey our culture and we see all this goodness being declared bad and evil being declared good, it calls to mind this famous statement that Isaiah made in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, where he said, woe to those that call evil good and good evil. Have we not seen that in our culture? Who put darkness for light and light for darkness? So we, we, and then we change the language. Well, what, you're against abortion? What, you're, you're against women? Now, I'm, I'm for women, including baby women. And I'm also for men, including baby men. Ones that have not yet been born yet. But see how they, they manipulate you. Well, your, your choice is to be pro-choice, ergo pro-women, you know, loving or this hateful pro-lifer. <laughs> we, we, we flip the categories. Where those that are pro-choice, who are actually anti-life, are considered good. And if you're a pro-lifer, well, you must be some sort of a nut job who hates women, hates liberty. This is all the work of the devil. Brothers and sisters, it's good to stand against murderers and defend innocent life. Abortion should make us all throw up in our mouths every time we think about it. And, and rather than just getting philosophical about it and debating, well, should we pick it? Shouldn't we pick it? What images should we use in the signs? Just do something. Speak out against it. And regardless of your active response, your soul should always be stirred to righteous anger when abortion is mentioned or a murderer gets off with a jail sentence that's often shorter than a Hollywood marriage. It's a, it's a disgrace to a culture when this kind of thing takes place. Now, we do find hope that ultimately, even if people get away with it in this life, God will judge. So in Revelation 21, 8, the last book of the Bible, it says, but as for the cowardly. Did you know that being a coward is a damnable sin? You ever thought about that? Being a coward. And now this is a reference to your faith. A lot of cowards today in Christian churches and behind Christian pulpits. When you are cowardly, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, it says, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion shall be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So you, if you die today, you go to hell. And then at the final judgment, you're removed and judged at the great white throne judgment. And then you go into the lake of fire. This is a proper understanding of damnation. And those that will be in there will include murderers. So all abortion doctors will be in the lake of fire for all of eternity. Now that doesn't give us reason to stand on the sidelines and watch and just say, well, you know, this world is not my home, just passing through, let's just wait it out and then God's gonna have his way. No, we have a responsibility to stand for righteousness in the here and now. So if we have the opportunity, we, we're always pro-life in that respect. And there's nothing pro-choice about murder 
you're either pro-life or anti-life. And again, the problem in our culture is most people are anti-life, but they actually think they're pro-choice. But really, they're just murderers or they're complicit in murder. You know, we've had this, let me speak to this indigenous situation that's taking place in our country today. Do I want to speak to it? Not really. Because you just open yourself up to scrutiny and criticism, but I must speak to it because it's an issue. So we have this indigenous issue and we have these unmarked, let's not call them mass graves, by the way, let's use accurate language. They're, they're abandoned cemeteries. They had wood, wood headstones and wood fences and they rotted. So they're abandoned cemeteries of children who should have never been taken from their parents into state custody because the state has no business indoctrinating or forcibly educating anyone's child. That's the main lesson we should be getting out of this, by the way. The state has no business indoctrinating or educating by force anyone's child. That's the, that's the big sin there. The secondary sin is that especially back in the early 1900s, there was clear racial prejudice and discrimination against indigenous peoples. There's plenty of evidence for that in the way they were treated. And shame on the churches that participated in that as the government's proverbial water boy. The, the church should never be the water boy of the state. We're separate from the state. We do our own ministry. So there, there's a problem there, and I want to acknowledge that problem, and I, want to, and I want to issue a word of condemnation against the system that permitted this. But it is telling, it's very telling, a couple things that are telling about this, but one of the things that's very telling about it is that when these 215 children in Kamloops, for example, when those bodies were rediscovered recently, that there is moral outrage across our country, the burning of Roman Catholic churches, even, even Catholic churches that were built by and operated by indigenous priests, which is kind of weird. And th these same social justice warriors, these people that are all up in arms and wearing orange and meeting in groups of 10,000, folks, they say nothing about the 83,000 children that were aborted this year presumably thousands of which were also indigenous children. Isn't it interesting? The social justice warriors are always very selective in what they stand for. They're the same ones, by the way, that yell and holler and spit and scream when a few hundred people gather on 2001 Spring Garden Road for worship during a lockdown, but they're okay violating the rules to the tune of 10,000 people in London a week or so ago. These people are not about justice. They're not about justice at all. They're Marxists. They're against Christianity. And it just so happens to be, love it or like it, love it or hate it, that in the last 500 or so-ish years, white, European, Western males for the most part, happened to have been at the head of the church. It wasn't always that way. It wasn't that way in the New Testament. The whites were all barbarians in Europe. 
right? The early leaders of the, of the Christian church were Africans, what we would call Middle Easterns, Asians, Indians. But the last 500 years or so, it just happens to be, it's changing, by the way, really quick. It's heading down to South America and back over to Africa. Those are the big churches of the future. But it happens to be that in the last 500 years, it's for the most part, white men that have been the popes, the bishops, the pastors, the, the leaders of churches. So the reason why culture hates white European men is because in their mind, white European men represent historic Christianity. So when you have some of these indigenous, just giving you a little lesson here in cultural Marxism, when you have some of these indigenous groups that meet or people that meet to support the indigenous situation, you read their material. It's like, well, we're, we're also standing again with other groups that are discriminated. And who do they label? Well, we're, we're standing with the indigenous. We're standing with blacks. We're standing with women. We're standing against Asian hate. And we're standing with the LGB community. Well, what do you have left? White men. Subtract everyone else from the list. You have white men. Now, white men are not more special than anybody else. We know that. But there's an agenda here, folks. These people are not about biblical justice. They're, they're about an anti-Christian agenda. And when, when they succeed, if they do in subjugating white men, and let's say we move forward 500 years, and now it's whatever, black women that are the head of the Christian church, well, then they'll be after them. Whoever represents the cause of Christ is who they're going to go after. So it, it, these, are not, these are not people that are truly concerned with justice. And this is all part of this culturally Marxist agenda, which Christians, we got Christian pastors. Oh, we need to apologize, you know, on behalf of the historic church for this and that. Folks, it's all smoke and mirrors. Take responsibility for your own sin. Take responsibility for your own generation. So this, these are some of the things that we see. Somehow the, the collective conscience of the Western world has been severely seared. Where people are, frankly, people are just, they've lost their minds, literally. They've lost their minds. And the confusion is rampant. And it's because they're not anchored in this book which brings great clarity to these issues. When it comes to the gospel, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male nor woman. Doesn't mean there's no males and females. Doesn't mean there's, no, there's, there's not different ethnic groups, but we're all equal in Christ. I don't care what your skin tone is, what your gender is, we're all equal in Christ and we should stand against injustice regardless. But, but not when it's fake justice. Not when it's fake justice that is actually designed to hinder the gospel. So the third question then is, when is it morally lawful to take a human life? Well, sometimes it's a gray area. Other times it's a little more black and white. And one situation that we would say is a gray area is found in Exodus 22, when it comes to someone burglarizing your house. So if someone breaks into your house, Exodus 22, don't read the whole section, but it says, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, 
There shall be no blood guilt for him. So someone breaks into your house, you wake up in the night, you're confused and you got a bat and you swing at something in the dark. You knock some guy out and he dies. You're not guilty. But if it's the daytime, you have to exercise more restraint. So read the passage further. Then there is blood guilt. So that's sort of a, we would say like a gray area. Well, it depends. And what that is intended to do, that kind of a law, is to mitigate against vigilante justice, right? Because it's not you as an individual and it's not the state as a whole, or sorry, it's not the church as a whole that is responsible for the execution of public justice. This is basic Romans 13. So we, we, we as a Christian church, we're not the ones executing people. We're not the ones arresting people. We're not the ones taking justice into our own hands. That's the state's responsibility. Now we speak into the state, we remind the state of their responsibility and they need to be reminded often. But passages like this are supposed to mitigate against vigilante justice. And if somebody for some reason makes a mistake and there's a discrepancy, God even provided under Old Testament law, cities of refuge, you could run to the refuge, a city of refuge where no one could arrest you or kill you while sort of the the tensions settle and people start to think a little more clearly. But there's another interesting passage in the Bible that sort of falls into a similar category and it's found in Deuteronomy 19.5. So here's the scenario. So let's say someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the ax to cut down the tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies. You know, it's, it's accidental death. You, know, you jack the car up. Hey, why don't you slide into there and pop the oil plug? And it collapses and you, your friend is killed and everyone's like, well, was it, was it on purpose or was it truly an accident? It's that kind of a scenario. It says, he shall flee to one of these cities and live. So it's another situation where it, it's, there's, there's, some, there's some grayness to it. We're not quite sure what happened, but there's at least this provision for the person to flee to a place of refuge and safety. And we can deliberate over situations like that. But there are also black and white situations like this, things that are clearly right or wrong when killing is permitted. So here's some examples of that. The first would be, it is perfectly acceptable for a state as an agent of God's justice to sanction either a capital punishment or a just war, not any war, but a just war. So even prior to the giving of the law, a lot of people think everything from Genesis 1 to Malachi is Old Testament. No, it's not. It's most, all of Genesis is actually pre-Old Testament, meaning Old Covenant. And so was the first part of Exodus. So Genesis is in the part of the Bible that we just sloppily call the Old Testament, but it's actually pre-Old Covenant. So it provides foundational laws. And in Genesis chapter nine, verse six, this is pre-Old Testament. This is a truth for all of time. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. So this is not an Old Testament law. This is a creation mandate that if a person takes another person's life, God protects his image in human beings by executing those that would try to execute others. So if a person is a murderous warmonger and we hear about it, 
We get our weapons and we go and liberate those that he or she is putting to death. And that's a righteous thing. I I know it wouldn't feel good. I get it. I'm not saying, oh, I'm looking forward to it or I'd want to do it. But you have a right and a responsibility to put to death a person that's putting other people to death. And there's no sin to be committed in that. I'm sure it'd be a traumatic thing. I've never been in that kind of a circumstance. But let us not fall into the trap of that, that many people in the West have fallen into, well, there's some warlord in Africa slaughtering people. We're like, well, we're just going to send a diplomat. Well, we're just going to send some letters. Well, we're just going to you know, send tweets out and hope that he stops. It's perfectly acceptable to send in our army to stop that person by force. Murderers should also be tried and sentenced to capital death. And whether or not it's a deterrent, who cares? It's not really the point. It's about right and wrong. So God's law exists to protect life and society. Paul said in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 1, 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the ungodly and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Talked about that last week. For murderers. So any government law that hinders this is a useless, unjust, godless law. So if a nation bans capital punishment as our nation has, that's an unjust, godless law that's contrary to the creation mandate that God has laid down for us. Now, I I understand that when I'm preaching this way, there's a lot of societal pushback, right? Maybe not in here. Maybe a few of you are a little uncomfortable and that's okay. But you preach this on the street, it's like, oh man, this guy is like an old-fashioned fundamentalist. You know, he's, he's a hyper-conservative, not very Canadian. And you can be branded as unloving or sort of a, an old-school thinker, but this, this is Bible. And you know what? I'm a creature, and I ain't apologizing to any other creature for what my creator has ever said. So if you want to debate, we need to debate the text but we should not throw aside God's law because this is what God has declared for us to practice and to advocate for in jurisprudence and in society as a whole. So generally speaking, we know that murderers are you know, far and few in between, thankfully. But we also need to address one final question and that is the issue of murderous attitude. So let's suppose you're mistreated, you're maligned and you're like, I would like to kill Aaron. Okay, I would like to put him to death. Well, what does God have to say about that? What does God have to say about murderous thoughts? Well, here's where the teachings of Jesus dovetail with Old Testament teachings by addressing the root issue, which is hatred. So Jesus said to us in Matthew 5, 21, have you heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment? You heard that? Jesus doesn't say, oh, by the way, I vetoed that one. But he goes, he adds to it. He he addresses the heart issue, which is kind of one of Jesus' specialties. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So he he reminds us of the heart issue, that you're also going to be judged, maybe not here and now, but in the future, by your attitudes toward other people. So rather than abolishing the sixth commandment, Jesus expands it and he reminds people of the essence of the issue, which is a heart issue. So while we are forbidden to murder other people, 
and we know that if we do, we'll be judged by both man and God. There's also this added lesson here that if we have a murderous heart, we're definitely gonna be judged by man or, or by God, even if man isn't aware of it. So we need to kind of take stock of our attitudes towards other people. And then Jesus goes on in the same passage to give us three scenarios of mistreatment for Jewish culture. So if you're from a Mennonite church, like my wife is, or a church that has historically taught you, no, Christians always have to avoid war, avoid any sort of violence. You've been mistaught. You've been misled. I'm telling you that straight up. You've been misled. That's not what the Bible teaches. Here's what Jesus says, and this is the passage that's often used to promote a form of pacifism. That, you know, we never, ever push back against evil. It says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. Now, you have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So this is the classic proof text for pacifists. But is this passage speaking about pacifism towards war or pacifism towards murderers? Or pacifism towards rapists? Is that what Jesus is talking about? No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. This has nothing to do with passivity to violent attacks. This is not a, a call to, you know, smelt your weapons down, you know, get rid of your guns. This is not a passage that vetoes capital punishment. But rather, these are all examples of people being personally offended and how we respond to personal offenses. Nothing to do with our response to murder, but how we respond to personal offenses. So for example, if it said if someone stabs you in the gut on the right side, let them stab you in the left side also, well then it would be an issue of violence. But to be slapped on the, the right cheek, so if someone's standing in front of you and they slap you on the, the right cheek, they're doing so with their left hand. And the left hand, I don't want to be gross, but let's just make sure we're, we're understanding, was your toilet hand in the Middle East. This was the hand that people, you know, absence of cottonell used to try to keep themselves clean. So to be, to be slapped on the right cheek was to be slapped with the left hand. This was very offensive. This is about personal offense. In, in the same way, a Roman soldier could by law say to any Jewish citizen, okay, I want you to carry my luggage one mile, but he couldn't ask you to go one point. One, he couldn't ask you to go two miles, but he could by law ask you to help him to the tune of one mile. It's kind of offensive. You get this occupying force taking advantage, but there's still limits to it. Jesus says, hey, carry his luggage two miles. Carry his luggage two miles. Now, notice there's some cultural stuff going on here that remind us about personal offense. If someone comes and asks you for a loan, 
which is supposed to be interest-free. You never loan money to another believer personally and charge interest. It's interest-free. He says, you know, be, be generous. So all three of these examples, they have nothing to do with violence. They have everything to do with being insulted in a perfect world. And the idea, the idea is when you're personally insulted, don't get so worked up about it. Like show some love, show some generosity, show some grace. Instead of hating people that offended you, which Jesus just finished talking about, because you'll be offended many times in your life, respond with love. So this isn't about, you can't take, carry the cloak one mile and say, oh, we can't go to war. Someone slaps you on the cheek, well then let them knife you to death too. This is an absurd interpretation of the text, especially when we have so many other texts that teach to the contrary. So rather, by loving, we are demonstrating the very quality that drives God to punish those that are taking other people's lives for murderous acts. So this is something for us to consider. My final admonition to you is just very practical and pastoral. And we ask the question, you know, what about murder and entertainment? I would just say exercise a lot of discretion. It's one thing to watch a a historical show that demonstrates the travesty or injustice that has been taken, that has taken place in the world, a war movie or whatnot. But you know, a lot of Christians, they feel comfortable watching, you know, gratuitous violence. And there's no redemptive value in that. Slasher films, horror films, out of bounds for followers of Jesus Christ. Murdering, gutting people, chopping people's heads off. These are not things that should we, we should ever find entertaining because in actual fact, they can just dull our response to how heinous and disgusting these things are. But you know, someone said, can't even remember my source, but I, I found this quite some time ago that if a child is permitted to watch three to four hours of television every day, which shockingly some are, that child will have witnessed about 8,000 murders on television by the time they finish school, grade school. So it's, it's all over the place. So we have to exercise some discretion there. Murder is not intended to entertain. We shouldn't permit ourselves to grow accustomed to ripper films and slasher films and think that somehow this is redemptive or entertaining. It should always cause us great concern. So exercise maximum discretion in what you watch and do so by just asking yourself this very simple question. Is there any redemptive value in what I'm watching? Is this a blessing to me or others in any way, shape or form? And if it's not, it's probably time to turn the channel. So let's take a renewed stance against the sin of murder. Let's teach our children these values. Let's refuse to glorify death. And let's commit as best as we can to, committing, to, to creating a pro-life culture within which both the church and nation can be blessed to the glory of God.